Welcome to Get Undressed, the podcast that gets under the skin of the fashion industry. Brought to you by Dressed, the world's first luxury styling game. I'm Victoria Moss, Fashion Features Director at Dressed, and I'll be your host. At Dressed, we want to help style a new fashion era, one with inclusivity and diversity at its core, where everyone can feel represented and at home. In a year when everything has been thrown off its axis, it feels particularly important to reframe the conversation around fashion. So in each episode, I'll be interviewing a luminary figure from the fashion world and hopefully finding out what makes them tick when we ask them to take the Dressionaire. We like to think of the Dressionaire as a personal and stylish guide to life in all its varied forms, looking at the power of fashion and how it can be a force for good rounding out the belief that to be well-dressed is far more than the sum of your outfit. It's how you live, think and act in the world. It's a mix of questions designed to get them talking and us thinking. Today, I'm really excited to introduce the divine Stephen Jones. Stephen is one of the world's most celebrated milliners. Over his four-decade-long career, He has topped the heads of everyone from Princess Diana to Rihanna and Madonna. In 2009, he curated the Hats and Anthology by Stephen Jones exhibition at London's V&A Museum, looking at the wild, wonderful and captivating history of hats. Alongside his own eponymous collection, he has worked with designers from Comme de Garçons' Ray Kawakubo to Marc Jacobs, Tom Brown, Matty Bovan, Jeremy Scott, Emilia Wickstead, Vivian Westwood, and most prolifically, has collaborated with the House of Dior for over two decades, working with John Galliano, Raph Simmons, Maria Grazia Turi, and Kim Jones. Galliano has described his work as the frosting to any collection. Stephen, a very warm welcome to Get Undressed. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you. Oh, I'm so thrilled you're you're on with us. How are you? I'm very well. Um running around, preparing the next collection, of course, and uh, speaking to clients all over the world by various internet methods, as I do normally, actually, because hats are so much about communication, and um, I can't always go to fittings personally. So, in fact, whereas everybody else has been learning the joys of Zoom, FaceTime, etc., etc., that's something that I do every day, almost. Ah, so you, you were already a Zoom pro before all of this. (laughs) <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm a, I'm a pro now, even, <laughs> but I can put the plug in the slot, basically. <laughs> um, and how how have the sort of past few months been for you? How have you found this year? Um, it's of course been an extraordinary year, um, and, and terrible, and nightmarish, um, and to read the news every day. But one of the fabulous things about fashion is is this wonderful, ridiculous antidote which is just a sticking plaster to the situation but a very effective one and one that um, everybody from all over the world always understands it's a great communicator but for me personally um, I actually had time at home I'm at Heathrow or at the Eurostar terminal every week yeah so for actually for me to be at home was a very unusual occurrence and 
um, I, I think I used it quite well. I always had this idea that I was going to have a wonderful siesta every day after lunch, <laughs> but I was always too busy. <laughs> and work finished at eight o'clock in the evening as normal. So you know, I, I've been busy and I was working on my next summer's collection. And um, yeah, uh, and looking after the people in my company. Um, you know, everybody's in a different situation there. Um, you know, some people wanted to work, some people wanted to be furloughed, some people, you know, everybody's different. So attending to their needs was very important. Yeah, absolutely. And are you sort of back, back running up now? Yes. I mean, in, 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 in a way, we never stopped. Um, the heads of the workroom were sent fabrics every week and they were working at home. And of course, suddenly they were gaining two hours a day because they weren't commuting. So as well as people talking about office workers and maybe for the foreseeable future, they'll be working from home. So with the milliners, of course, we miss that personal contact. But as far as the most bizarre thing is that in these terrible times we've been living through, people really do love hats just because, as you said before, they're the frosting, um, they're the cherry on the cake. They sort of mean nothing but mean everything. So um, hat sales have actually been quite healthy. That's so interesting. So you've still been having your, your kind of usual amount of orders and, and clients still wanting new bits. Well, of course, it, uh, things became quieter because there was no Ascot. There have been no weddings, but a little thing to wear on a Zoom phone call. You know, sorry, Manolo, they're not looking at people's feet, but you're looking <laughs> at your hats. <laughs> so hats and hairdos and makeup and collars and everything um, yes. suddenly became very, very important. Yeah, everything from from the neck up. That's brilliant. And congratulations on your new book, um, Dior Hats, which is all about your the house of Dior Hats. Can you tell me a little about this um, and how how long that's taken to to pull that together? And well, in fact, I started to work on this about eight years ago, um, and had this initial idea that nobody had really, I mean, there are very few hat books and nobody had documented um, the, the story of Dior hats. There are many books on Dior, um, each with a different point of view, um, but nobody, and some were about accessories as well, but nobody had really documented or, or, or researched Dior hats or sort of found out the theory of Dior and, and why it's so associated with hats. And along the way, I found out that the first designs that Monsieur Dior sold were actually hat drawings. He was not initially a dress designer, he was a hat designer. And how he believed that hats, I mean, he said famously in one quote, um, without hats, there is no civilization. <laughs> and certainly, he came from a world and he believed in a world where a woman was impeccably dressed and she was always finished with something on her head. She didn't, he didn't actually think of it as being something very separate. Uh, he thought it just as a continuation of the outfit. Yeah, the, the whole thing together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was it like going through the archive? And is that something that you've, you've done a lot um, in your work with the house or were you finding new things? I was finding new things. Um, of course, I go through the archives frequently and um, as well as making hats for the different divisions of Dior, the uh, women's, men's and baby Dior as well. I work a lot on the exhibitions that they have around the world. For example, the 
Christianity or Designer of Dreams exhibition, which was at the V&A last year, which yeah. was hugely successful, and then transferred it to America, and actually has just opened in Shanghai. Um, I've worked on that, so I'm very used to the archives. Mm. And also when different designers come into the house, like Raf, like Maria Grazia, and of course most recently Kim Jones, it's my pleasure to be able to sort of show them around a bit the archives and impart my knowledge of the history of Dior and uh, the, the, the excitement of the house. So yes, I knew it, but actually nobody had researched the hats. Nobody had looked at, it, at them at all. And Swazik Faf, who is the director of the Dior Heritage, loved the hats, but said, well, you know, people never really ask for them, but they're so evocative of time and place. So for me, it was a real thrill, but it was a very long gestation, eight years ago, and it was something that I suggested to uh, John Galliano, who loved the idea, uh, Sidney Colodano, who was the previous president, and uh, during the time with Raf, I was starting to write it then, and certainly with Maria Grazia, um, especially came when it came to the photography, it was a Maria Grazia outfit on the cover, and uh, she very much helped the final editing of the book, and uh, so it really has been a collaboration. Wonderful, yes, a, a real labour of love with lots of different different heads involved. Yeah, yeah. And they were hats of Monsieur Dior, and then of Yves Saint Laurent, Marc Bohan, uh, Gianfranco Ferre, um, and then John, and then Raph, and then Maria, Maria Grazia. And each person has got a very different approach to hats and what they do. Do they make the collection or do they break it? You know, hats are incredibly powerful as, as an accessory, just because they're so visible. Yes. And what what's it been like working with the house, with the sort of different designers and through its different incarnations? Well, each designer is very different um, and see hats in a very different way. For example, first of all, working with Dior is a complete honour, but it's an adventure too. It's like any marriage, sometimes there's good days, sometimes there's bad days. <laughs> <laughs> but the making up is always quite good. Yeah. Um, but, for example, working with John, you know, he was a storyteller. So often the story will be told through the hat and the makeup and the extremities. And then the clothing sometimes would almost be a fill-in. Then with Raph, for him, um, a hat or a veil was a real evocation of mid-century glamour. Um, he loved that idea of this is the 50s pose, even though to him, hats were really not part of his personal design language. So we did do some hats for him, but not all the time. And then for Maria Grazia, you know, she was a real hat wearer herself. And yes. she is the fit model. So she tries all the hats on herself. And it's not whether they suit her or not, but she really likes to have a go because she's seeing things from a woman's point of view. And she said to me, so often, I really want to make a hat that every young girl, every woman in the world would want to wear. And that's why they are in a particular way. Yeah, that's quite a big ask, isn't it? It's quite a big <laughs> ask. But we, see, we seem to be, very luckily enough, touching wood, crossing my fingers, um, seem to be able to be doing it at the moment. And um, Dior hats are extremely popular around the world. And, and also... There's sort of a symbol of French fashion. You know, if, you, if you're if you a, a young girl of 14 years old and you half close your eyes and you imagine what French fashion looks like, she's probably got a big skirt on and she's always wearing a hat because somehow that's shorthand for glamour, um, otherness, um, excitement, drama. Yeah, all of those things. 
Okay, so we're now going to go into the Drastionaire. Lots of questions, but um, just answer them as you find them. Short answers, long answers, however you feel. Did you find the fashion world an easy or hard place to get into? I just sort of fell into it almost by chance. (laughs) Uh, Was it easy? Yes, in a way, it was easy. And the reason that it was easy because of my friends and the people around me, not only myself, because they pushed me. And did you have a plan B? Plan B from outer space? No. (laughs) (laughs) I've never had a plan B. I don't think I've ever had a plan A either, to tell you the truth. (laughs) To be in the fashion world was not a great ambition. I really did not know what I wanted to do. I mean, apart from being an astronaut, age 10 or something. (laughs) They have good hats. Yeah, yeah. Round ones normally. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) What's been the most useful career advice you've been given? Most useful career. Um, uh, When I had started to learn to make hats, the lady who taught me, Shirley Hex, actually pushed me out of the nest. I said to her, oh, can I come back next year and learn? And she said, no, I've taught you enough. Now you need to find your own way, because if you find your way, that will make sense. Who inspires you most in the industry? Inspires me most in the industry. I think, me personally, the designers I work with, so that is Mark Jacobs, Tom Brown, Maria Grazia, Ray Kawakubo, um, all those designers who I work with. It is a two-way flow of information. And who has helped you the most? My long-suffering friends, (laughs) (laughs) who I phone up at nine o'clock in the evening when I was supposed to be there for dinner at 7.30 and say, sorry, I'm still making a hat. (laughs) (laughs) They're very loyal to me, even though I'm not very loyal to them. (laughs) What's been your most thrilling fashion moment? I think, well, either being given an OBE, an OBE was extraordinary, and an OBE for millinery as well, for services to millinery. I'm the only one, um, It was written in the program that it was going to be for services to fashion, but when they made the announcement, it was services to millinery. I think that, and I think the opening evening of Hats and Anthology by Stephen Jones, which was an exhibition I curated at the V&A in 2009, that was extraordinary, because it was also a celebration of 25 years of London Fashion Week. So it was a huge party. and I was there, I remember. Yeah, a pinch yourself (laughs) moment. Yeah, I couldn't quite believe it at all happened. Still can't. Yeah, it was wonderful, that um, the exhibition. And I remember the party because it was really one of those proper big fashion week parties. It was... Um, totally. You don't get very up. often. So glamorous. No, no, no. Certainly not now anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, we will in the future, but it'll be very different. Yes. And what's been your least glamorous fashion moment? <laughs> They happen every day. Um, <laughs> my least glamorous fashion moment, I don't know, is the one. I mean, glamour is a sliding scale. Is unpicking something for the fourth time at three o'clock in the morning, is that unglamorous? <laughs> no, not really. Um, I don't know. I don't think there is one. What do you like to work with? 
I think you should ask my staff that one, not me. <laughs> but um, precise, encouraging, I hope, because hats take on their own life and we have to help them along. And it's very important to go with the flow of design, not constrict it as it's developing. And how do you balance creativity with the more commercial elements of the fashion world? The funny thing is, for me, I mean, I'm 63 now, but creativity for me is commercial. What people want from me is something which is creative. If they want a, a simple baseball cap, I can tell them 25 places where to get really, really good ones that I might wear myself. But what my clients want from me, which is something which is really me, which has got a handmade touch and is really Stephen Jones. I'm in that very lucky position. And when do you know you have a good idea? Oh, I never do. <laughs> I never do. Uh, uh, and certainly only in retrospect, maybe a year later, two years later, I can think that was good. But... The crazy thing about the fashion world is that you have to reinvent yourself every quarter or every six months. So you're only really as good as your last collection. And can fashion be a force for good? Absolutely. Especially at the moment, in so many instances where there's no hope, the only thing that you can do is somehow control your appearance. And maybe that's just putting a flower behind your ear or wearing, uh, ironing, ironing that top. Maybe it's a very, very small thing, but it will enable you to feel a little bit better about yourself. And if you feel a little bit better about yourself, you're better to the world and things will go better. We hope. Yeah. Mm. And why does clothing matter? Because we'd all be rather chilly on a day like the day. <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> uh, why does clothing matter? Because appearance matters. When I was a very young, when I was six or seven, my mother uh, used to take me around art galleries in the Northwest, and we would talk about what people were wearing. And it was very much about appearance and the messages that people want to send out. Um, even as a real child, uh, this is something that she was interested in, and she passed on to me, and I remembered it extraordinarily. Enough. And why doesn't clothing matter? Why doesn't clothing matter? Because clothing is really about the person inside. But again, this is an important point of fashion, and particularly of millinery. In a funny way, we all know who we are. It's quite nice to be somebody else. You can put yourself into a third person. So if you're not feeling confident, you can put confident clothes on. If you're not feeling beautiful, you can put something beautiful on. Um, so that's why clothing is important and important. But it really is about the person inside. Yeah. And what does being well-dressed mean to you? <laughs> well-dressed, that's a difficult one. Um, there's somehow a grace or an elegance or a simplicity or a fun. Um is it that the person's really themselves? Not necessarily. It's this, fashion is this weird nebulous thing, um, and being well-dressed is this weird nebulous thing. And I think often people say, oh, fashion is, being well-dressed is about confidence. Well, that's, being confident is sometimes a, 
an impossible dream. We don't feel like that all the time. So that seems, but I think, I don't know, watch this space. That's <laughs> absolutely something that um, is an ongoing question. It's like, it's a word a little bit like style. What is style? Yeah. You can never really put your finger on it, which is why fashion and appearance is an art. It's not something which is necessarily logical. I had a conversation with Barbara Hu and Nikki from Bieber just before Christmas, which uh, the idea of which I put into next season's collection. And she said, I said, Barbara, why do people buy clothes? And she said, oh, not because it's fashionable, not because it makes them look good. It's just got to have fairy dust. And that's absolutely the reason why. So that's why my summer's collection is called Analog Fairy Dust. So <laughs> now you have it. World exclusive. <laughs> um, and do you have a favorite fashion quote? This is about 90% accurate, not 100% accurate, but from Oscar <laughs> Wilde. He said, fashion is a thing so ridiculous it has to reinvent itself every six months. And what do you think will really drive true inclusivity in fashion? True inclusivity. Um, personally, it has always been about true inclusivity. I can't imagine it being anything else. It seems to be such a weird idea. But I know for the world outside, it's something different. What will drive it? Time. All the million different attempts at inclusivity which are being done at the moment. So when a new generation grows up, they think it's completely normal. They don't think about inclusivity. It's just there. What was the last thing you bought? Um, what was the last thing I bought? I bought last fashion purchase. Or I anything. Bought, yeah, um, anything. Well, I bought dinner last night <laughs> <laughs> at the Colbert, which was very fun. Lovely. With um, Hamish Wells from American Vogue. Um, so that, that was great. The last piece of clothing I bought was um, the Dior shirt that I'm wearing at the moment by Kim Jones, which is in Jacquard Toile de Jury in navy and grey. Beautiful. Um, and what's your strongest childhood memory? The wind. I, we lived on basically a sand dune in the northwest in the Wirral Peninsula, and we lived Literally, it was our house, then Little Road, and then the sea. So even in the middle of August, it was like November in a Force 10 gale. So the sea and the clouds and the raging waters, but the wind every day. And what do you always have with you? My telephone, because I'm a communicator and I use it all the time, whether it's for voice or for email. And um, I'm, you know, people often say to me, what are the most important work tools and think that I'm going to say a pair of scissors <laughs> and a workbench. No, it's my telephone and probably my thimble. A thimble is something that milliners have to use all the time because we have to push through so many layers of fabric and so many hard fabrics. You can't actually do it with your finger. You have to wear a thimble. Oh, I love that. What do you always forget? Um, I've forgotten. <laughs> perfect I've actively forgotten you know that people actively don't listen yes 
I actively forget. <laughs> and what makes you happy? Life, people. Hats as well, but I think people. Being in love. And how would your family describe you? Oh God, I prefer not to know. <laughs> <laughs> um, how would my family describe me? Um, somebody who's driven um, and is doing their own thing. I had to find my own way because in a funny way, I didn't want my family's way. So I had to create my own world where it all made sense. It still doesn't make sense, but I'm still trying 40 yeah. years later. Because <laughs> it was 40 years ago, um, on the 1st of October, 1980, that I opened my first hat shop in Endell wow. Street in Covent Garden. Yeah. Gosh, congratulations. That's a brilliant Thank milestone. Yeah. yeah. I can't still believe I'm doing it. I never thought I'd make it to 30. <laughs> <laughs> and how would your friends describe you? Unreliable? No. Um, <laughs> I think they'd say driven as well. Um, hat maker. I don't think they would say I was a fabulous host or great fun or, you know, they'd say, oh, <laughs> he makes hats. <laughs> I think it's been my defining thing for a long time. And I'm very lucky that the thing that I love is my career. Yes. And do you always feel confident? No, not at all. There's always a measure of confidence, um, but... Uh, a complete measure of lack of confidence as well, in parallel. But I think that's the human human nature somehow. Yeah. And how do you feel when you're the centre of attention? When I'm the centre of attention, I sort of move up a gear. Um, I go into overdrive and can do it. But it's sometimes a little bit in the third person. Yeah. Yeah. But I've also was told that I couldn't be, you know, bashful about things, that I had to be graceful and accept those things. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, uh, I'll give you an illustration. During lockdown, I did a series of videos um, to hat makers around the world. I was mm -hmm. asked by um, Spanish Association of Millinery, um, the American Millinery Guild of New York. Um, I'm the chairman of the British Hat Guild. And I did one in Spanish, and I, and I felt a bit ridiculous doing it, just talking to camera. And after a couple of days, I had a direct message um, via Instagram. And said, um, this lady said, I'm a milliner in Chile. I'm in a small village, and we're going through terrible things at the moment. But watching your video really helped me. And thank you for putting me in touch with the world. And... After I'd wiped away my tears because I couldn't believe it, just thought, I just thought, well, you know, that's the thing that I have to do and take the responsibility for it. And um, that was a wonderful thing that I've been able to do. And when you've been doing it for a long time, that's the sort of thing that happens to you. So being part of the centre of attention, yeah, you have to accept that and be grateful. Yeah. And what makes you feel vulnerable? Hmm. Fashion. <laughs> no, what makes me feel vulnerable? Um, myself, my inner dialogue, <laughs> self-inflicted, <laughs> my bank account. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what 
What's your favourite film? The Red Shoes by Pressburger and Powell, um, which was made, I think, in 1948, um, starring Norma Shearer, and it's the film version of the Hans Christian Andersen tale of The Red Shoes. But really, what it's about, as the original fable was, is the choice between life and art, whether you have to give up your life to pursue your art or not. And what book do you always come back to? Sometimes Passion Magazine, but um, there's a book called The Natural History of the Senses, which really examines touch, smell, sound, sight. Uh, And it's by a lady called Diane Ackerman. It was published about 20 years ago. And I continually reread it to remind myself how, even though I'm a visual person, it's completely linked to everything else, and it's linked to the human body. So I read that all the time. And what song always makes you dance? Ooh, so many. Teenage Kicks by The Undertones. <laughs> but, it could, but it could be, oh, anything, anything, everything makes me dance. I'm a runner, so I listen to dance music all the time. Um, and I love dancing. I was a club kid, you know, still am in my yeah. brain. <laughs> What's your favorite room at home? Maybe my bedroom, which has no decoration in it whatsoever, which has completely white walls. It's all white on white on white. Um, people are very surprised when they see it. But it's all white, so I can imagine every pattern, every drawing, every hat, every painting, every sculpture. Mm, that makes sense, I think. Are you a morning person? Yeah, definitely. Um, I get up early, 5.30 or 6 o'clock. Um, actually, I'm a morning person and not an afternoon person. And I can be quite a late night person too. <laughs> <laughs> Do you procrastinate? Of course. Uh, I think like every creative, you know, I might have a week to do a drawing and it'll be done five minutes before it has to be sent in. But then at other times, I mean, I love doing the research if I'm working on my own collection, uh, research, and right, it's my greatest pleasure. So it's a weird mixture. Um, but my procrastination is always full of useful things, too. So in a funny way, um, one becomes more of a dimensional person through procrastination. Yeah, it's part of the journey. Yeah, yeah. What's the most extravagant thing you've ever done? Extravagant thing I've ever done? Become a milliner, I think. Um, yeah, make hats, most extravagant thing. Um, maybe the most extravagant thing I've ever done was I was a commentator for Channel 4 for um, uh, Catherine and William's wedding. Oh. She's in the Duchess of Cambridge. Yes. And um, it was maybe one of the most stressful experiences of my life <laughs> because I was broadcasting to the nation, if not the world, live um, with an earpiece in and with the floor manager shouting at me. Oh, and, you know, And, um, you know, there were certain hats there that they really wanted to make comment about. Mm. So after the broadcast was finished, I went home 
picked up my passport and got a cab to Heathrow and bought a first-class ticket to Los Angeles <laughs> and went two hours later. Amazing. Mm. That's a brilliant thing to have done. Yes, in the morning suit and top hat <laughs> with not even a toothbrush. Brilliant. <laughs> but a credit card and stayed with friends. And just, I phoned them on the way to the airport and said, I'll be there in about 15 hours or something. <laughs> Perfect. I want to do that. <laughs> it worked. It worked. What do you do to relax? I think experience nature, walk, look at the sky. Simple things. Um, yeah, do something physical as opposed to something cerebral. And what keeps you up at night? Phone calls with friends around the world, whether they're in Los Angeles or Tokyo. Um, one of the things that I've done all my life is travel. So people might be in London, but they might be anywhere else. So... Yeah, that's what keeps me up at night. Does worrying keep me up at night? Never. In fact, I can force myself to sleep so I don't worry. That's good. That's a good trick. Yeah, yeah. And what's the best lesson you've learned so far in your life? Just dive in. Don't look before you leap. How ambitious are you? Now, before I opened the shop... Um, 40 years ago. I, I mean, I would say I was not ambitious at all. And whenever I say that, my friend Fiona, who's basically, whose beautiful flat in Victoria, I had crashed in. Um, I told her that, uh, even though I didn't have a shop or a company, that when she answered the phone, she had to answer it to Stephen Jones Millinery. <laughs> she couldn't say, hello, this is Fiona. <laughs> and I wasn't even a paying guest. I was just a guest. So she, she would say I was the most ambitious person she'd ever met. But I really, I really was not. I mean, certainly I was driven to do something. But yeah. I wasn't, didn't have an ambition to have a goal. And I sort of don't believe in that because I think the goal is... I've seen people be very ambitious to have that. And yes, they achieve a lot, but in a way there's a disappointment at the end as well. Mm. And I don't know, maybe I was just never that self-confident to have an ambition, never had that amount of self-belief. But also one of the things about ambition is that it does tend to often cut out other things so you can't accept other people's ideas. It means that you're not a good listener because what you're doing is you're just talking your talk, you're, you're saying your speech to the world all the time, and mm. you're not accepting things in. So as a creative person, it's actually very good to have a two-way flow of information. That's my approach anyway. I mean, yeah. other people would say things very different, but that's how I see things for me. Mm. And what's your favourite cheap thrill? Cheap thrill. Mm. Cheap thrill. Cheap crisps. <laughs> Which ones? Uh, walkers, salt and vinegar. Perfect. But with a very, very nice expensive bottle of champagne. Yes, high-low. Yes, high-low. <laughs> the thing is, yes, you can have, you know, crisps, you know, made by virgins and flavoured with rosemary harvested <laughs> under the moon or something. But it's the cheapness of the crispness of the powderiness and the blandness of it, which may, which is wonderful contrast to this wonderful luscious bottle of Laurent Perrier yeah 
What's your favourite game? Um, game of Thrones, because Gwendolyn Christie's in it. And what has this year taught you, good and bad? What has this year taught me? Um, good, the spirit of human nature, um, generosity, kindness, love, actually. Um, what is thing bad toy? Uh, bad is obviously COVID-19, but I almost take everything as a positive experience. In the most negative thing, there's always a lesson to be learned, which can improve you or help you understand or help you understand others. You know, would you say that people stockpiling on toilet paper <laughs> is a negative <laughs> thing? Well, yes, in a way. And in fact, at that particular time, very early on, I was in Sri Lanka and um, I was staying in a hotel and I was talking to one of the people there and they said, well, you know, why in Europe can't you use a leaf? <laughs> <laughs> they thought the toilet paper was a bit decadent, actually. Well, I mean, <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> good point. Um, what person do you admire right now? So many people. Um, but I think of Michelle Obama for her speech last week or the week before. I wish she was president. I know, yeah, she's quite breathless. Uh, but I think the world think I think the world thinks that. Yeah, I think she's beyond president, um, isn't she? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have not met anybody who doesn't think she's quite wonderful. Even you know, a Republican would say, "Well, she's a fairly extraordinary person." Yeah, absolutely. And what are you most proud of achieving? Um. Being a milliner for 40 years, I think. Yeah. Um, being a bad friend. <laughs> um, being a bad friend, being a good lover. <laughs> okay, it's now time for the quick fire round. Scrabble or chess? Scrabble. Monopoly or Cluedo? Cluedo. Beret or Beta? Beret. Swimming or running? Running. London or Paris? <gasps> An amalgam of the two. <laughs> Under the channel. <laughs> <laughs> um, minimalism or the avant-garde? The avant-garde. Croissant or scrambled eggs? Scrambled egg. Diamonds or pearls? Diamonds. Catherine or Audrey Hepburn? Audrey. Grunge or glamour? Glamour. Bows or feathers? Bows. Fish and chips or tea and cake? Fish and chips. Stephen, thank you so, so much for joining me on Get Undressed today. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to Get Undressed, the podcast brought to you by Dressed, the world's first luxury styling game, which is available to download now from the App Store. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Get Undressed via your preferred podcast platform. Listold.